Welcome back to Comic Book Historians. I'm Alex Grand, and let's continue part two of the Who Is Bud Plant interview. Any stories or interactions with Will Eisner? Well, the first time I went, met Will Eisner was in the bathroom at San Diego. <laughs> he had supposedly come by my table looking for me, and that would have been the first time we met. I, I don't know how I never saw him in, in New York, but somehow we didn't pop, pop in and get together. But we ran into each other in the bathroom in San Diego. That was probably later on. I, I don't know if he was going to Suling conventions probably in the early 70s. He might not have been, you know, because this is this has got to be later. Um, this mm-hmm. could be late 70s or early 80s or something. And, and I had read it was, that it was uh, Suling that invited Eisner to the New York comic conventions. Yeah. Yeah. He he may have been at the convention, but I never got the opportunity to meet him. So yeah. it was later on when I had become better known. I was the guy putting out the big fancy catalogs and I was carrying all of Eisner's publications, you know, his first graphic novel from Baronet, stuff like that. And so Eisner, at that point, I was higher on Eisner's radar. Yeah, (laughs) as a business associate, actually. Yeah, exactly. In fact, I mean, I'm always sort of proud of it that um, when I was talking to him, I told him that, you know, he'd done a couple good books on how to draw comics. But I said, you know, nobody's done a book on narrating comics, on storytelling comics. You know, he said that's a really good idea. And he ended up doing a doing a book called Comic Narrative, narrating yeah. whatever, whatever the title was. Uh-huh. Um, and I helped him. I also helped him get in with the publisher. Um, he was doing his own how-to books, self-publishing them. And I was doing a lot of business with Watson Guptill. And there's another publisher that does a lot of how-to books or an imprint of Watson Guptills, actually, I think. Northlight books. And I said, hey, I know these guys at Northlight. They do all these how-to books. Why don't you get them to distribute your book? And lo and behold, he ends up distributing his books. And he didn't have to. Him and his brother were handling it. His brother was part of the business. We did business stuff together, you know, stuff nice. like that. Besides the fact that I, I, mean, I love his work. I mean, I'm a huge spirit fan. For that's me, cool. it was all part. It was all mixed together. The business part and the and, business. You know, yeah, yeah, that that's cool that you're actually able to connect the love of the the form with these people, and then as a business venture as well. That's awesome. Yeah, Suling, Suling and I did um, the spirit coloring book back in '74. The story on that is sort of funny. I had not done anything with Eisner at all, but Suling came up with this idea of taking splash pages from spirit sections from the '40s and doing it as a coloring book taking the black and white originals and stuff. And so Suling came to me and said, do you want to go in with me on it? We'll, we'll co-publish it. And I said, sure. Yeah, yeah, we can do that. You know, little did I know that coloring books are crap and nobody wants it. Most comic book fans do not want coloring books. I learned that the hard way by doing the spirit coloring book. But anyway, Suling and I, so supposedly we're publishing that, but Eisner um, put it together with the, I guess with his printer or something. And it comes out and it says published by poor house press, which is, him there's no mention of suling or i but we're the guys that put the money up oh wow <laughs> and, and you know came up with the idea suling says hey will this isn't right i mean you know we we should be we should be listed in here so will prints up these little labels that we're supposed to peel and stick and we're supposed to put in every copy of the it was like 3500 copies or something we did. <laughs> and of course we never did it i don't know what happened to all those peel and stick things but you know i mean that's the part of the story I remember the most was like, okay, now we're going to have to open every one of these up and carefully put this little peel stick thing that says distributed in the East coast by Phil Suling and the West coast by Bud Plant. <laughs> so anyway, the thing was a disaster anyway. I mean, I find he, I, 
over 50 years, you, you can find yourself with just about anything. But just like the last issue of Promethean, when we printed 5,000, I had those forever. And I had spirit coloring books forever. You were still in college at the time when Comics and Comics started in 1972 in Berkeley. Can you tell me about the circumstances and the formation of Comics and Comics? John Barrett, like I said, I mentioned he was going to school. He was a year older than I was. So he was he had started photojournalism in college. And um, um, what happened with me is that I was still going to the conventions in the summer, whereas John, I think, had stopped doing that. And I needed somebody to run my mail order business in the summertime when I'd go off for two or three weeks and go to all these conventions because you got to get the orders out. You know, you got to keep things going. And so I hired John to do that for me, you know, the first time, I think the first the first summer in whatever it would have been, 71 maybe. When I came back, John says, hey, you know, you got a kind of a good little thing going here. I mean, people are sending you money and we'd send them comics and stuff like that. Why don't why don't we be partners? I don't know if I want to really go into the photojournalism thing. I'm, you know, not that enamored with college. It'd be it'd be fun to put to do something like this. And um, my attitude was I'd already been through a couple partnerships for for better or for worse. I'd been through Seven Sons for a very short time and then the other store with the four partners down to two partners. And John, of course, had been in that partners in both both of those enterprises. But I sort of said, well. I sort of got a good gig going, what do I need a partner for? Sort of like running it myself, which could have been a mistake. I mean, maybe things, but things would have been totally different if we, if I had done that. But instead I said, well, look, I'm happy doing the mail order business and I can handle it the way it is now by myself, but why don't we open a store again, but open a real store, a serious store where, where we need one instead of opening another store in San Jose where that already had now, they had Frank Scadina down there and they had Bob Sybottom, comic collector shop was there. San Jose really didn't need another store. We ended up opening up there anyway, but that's you know later on. But I said, what, what, where could we open a store that would be groovy? And we said, well, Berkeley. Berkeley's a natural. It's you know Telegraph Avenue. It's where all the stuff's going on. You know, there's great good bookstores up there. It's a commute from San Jose, but it's an untapped area. Arlington's over in San Francisco. There's nobody selling comics in in the Berkeley area. You know, we said, well, okay, let's open up a store in Berkeley. We went up there and checked it out. In fact, when we were walking around, they had just had some kind of protest or something. There was tear gas floating around, and John got dosed with tear gas, not directly, but it was just floating around. And we were on a side street somewhere. We never saw the protest, but he gets hit by by tear gas in his eyes, and you know, his eyes are watering and stuff. So anyway, we scout out a location right on Telegraph Avenue, right in front of a bus stop. And um, say, okay, well, and basically I was going to be the money guy. I was somehow making enough money in the mail order business. And I had stock to sell because I had the underground comics. I had the fanzines and John may have contributed some money too. I don't know exactly what the situation was on that, but, um, but I was going to be the the silent backer basically, because I couldn't work in Berkeley and go to San Jose state at the same time. I mean, that, that would have been impossible. It's a, that'd be a two hour commute every day. So John said, I'll run the store. You know, you, you know, you help with the money and the fanzines and stuff like that. So that's what we did. And then we, we'd met Bob Bierbaum at the shows when we were going back to Oklahoma and Texas and probably New York. I think John, Bob was back in New York too. And he was another youngster like us, same age, same interests and stuff like that. And so we actually came out to California with Bob 
because um, he came out to visit us. Because we dragged guys out. We dragged out Bruce Hurtinson from, he was from New York. We dragged him out to California. And um, maybe it was after a San Diego con. I'm not sure. It's very possible it might have been after San Diego. And we were saying, hey, Bob, why don't you why don't you move out here from Nebraska and, you know, and open work with us in comics and comics, you know, be a partner. Bob said, no, no, I got to go back to school. I'm, you know, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, he, he drives back and he makes it into the Salt Lake Desert, blows his car up, blows his engine out. And um, the story is that he rebuilds, he gets his engine rebuilt from some funky gas station there. And he says, oh, well, that's my tuition money. So I guess I'm not. Now, I, he may have a totally different version of this. He doesn't usually talk about this part of it. But anyway, so he turns around, comes back to California. His car blows up again in Sacramento. I'm still living in San Jose at this point. So I go up and I tow him, tow him back to San Jose. And his car sits in front of my house for the next six months or something. And he moves in with me. And slowly he gets a regular job. And then he also starts working in comics and comics and buys in as a partner. I think it was going to be like 3000 bucks was going to be his contribution to, to buy into comics and comics. So he became the third, the third partner in comics and comics at that point. One of the big bones of contention is Bob likes to give himself credit for starting comics and comics. Well, it just depends on what perspective you're, you're looking at. Yes. He was there at the beginning. Yes. He started it in a general sense, but n- no, it wasn't his idea. You know, it was, it started with John and I and started with the story I just told you and Bob, we brought Bob in, you know. And it started, it sounds like as an extension, uh, sort of speak of the mail order business that you already had going. Yeah. Although, I mean, we immediately started selling new comics, which was a okay. step above what I was doing. I mean, we go. were, by this point, we were smart enough to go, go to the distributor because uh, this is still, this is probably pre-direct market. Yeah, 72, think, yeah. Yeah, we went to um, the distributor up in the, the Oakland area and said, we want to buy comics from you. And we started buying comics at some horrible discount, 25 or 30% off. But, you know, we stocked it with new comics and with the underground comics. And, of course, they were super popular with the, with the campus being up there with 25,000, 30,000 students. I mean, it was, it was a, great, a great place to open a store you know, and that was always our flagship store. That was a store that no other store made money. Berkeley probably always made money. That's and John cool. was a really good partner. He was a really hard worker. I mean, he hustled his butt. And initially, he drove from San Jose to Berkeley to run the store. And eventually, he moves he moves up there, gets married, and, and continues to do that whole thing. But the, the one of the running jokes was, um, because I had, by that point, even in 72, 73, I was somewhat known in the comic book field and people would come in and say, where's Bud Plant? You know, are you Bud Plant? To anybody that was working behind the counter. So Jim Buser finally got a little button that said, I am not Bud Plant. And he, you know, all the guys would wear it, (laughs) a little button saying, I am not Bud Plant. Because as my customer, more and more customers came in and my mail order business grew, I was getting an international, well, let's Mm. not overblow it, but I was getting a reputation I was one of the better known people in the comic book field as I was pumping out catalogs and doing ads and mm-hmm. you know, all the publications. So I was really well known and I'd advertise comics and comics. So people kept coming and expecting to see me behind the counter. Never. You know, <laughs> I could barely run the cash register. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. You guys hosted the 1973 first Bay Area comics convention, the Berkeley Con. Is that right? Well, the underground, the first underground convention. We like to call it the under. It was you know, it's called Berkeley Con. But it was primarily an underground comics convention. Mm. And and it really was started by, you know, Mike Maniac. Yeah. It was started by Mike Maniac and 
But anyway, Mike and this other guy, they were they were a couple of timely fans and they're not business people at all, but they just wanted to put on a they said, let's put on a convention. I think they wanted to do it as an underground convention. Mm. I think that was their concept. At some point, they they came to us in comics and comics and said, this is the way I remember. You should get Mike's version of this. But they felt like they were over their head. They didn't really know exactly how to how to continue to proceed to put on this convention. And of course, hey, we're the pros. We've been going to New York for what two years, so we know all about conventions. <laughs> you know, we got involved in it, and um, again, so it was their idea and everything. We just, you know, sort of came on board and said, "Yeah, we could, we could help you guys do that. We could help publicize it." Somebody went up to the um, the campus to UC Berkeley and talked them into doing it and said that we'll we'll rent the poly. It's the poly ballroom. It's one of their facilities up there it's really close again it's really close to telegraph avenue so you could just walk up there from the store and um we rented the poly ballroom and we had to hand construct the art show the night before the art show so we had to go out and buy plywood and two by fours and put the damn thing together through half the night that was one reason i don't remember much about that convention because i was on the inside you know i was handling you know the administrative stuff you know letting people in oh you know, well, that guy's an artist okay he can come in for free this guy i don't know who this guy is make him pay you know and, and we had to put together the art show which was nice um john campbell had become a partner by that point and campbell had fallen into um a mat- batch of really nice original art and so we had how foster prince diane's and oh, wow. um Tarzan pages and stuff on display, but we also had lots of underground stuff. And all the underground artists were really, really happy to contribute. There's a nice little program book. Did you, you've seen that little, yeah, Berkeley program book? Vada Bonker put that together. That was Vada Bonker's design. Uh-huh. Um, and the underground artists all contributed artwork and stuff. And so we did this nice little show, one-off show. There was another show the next year, but I don't think we had anything to do with it. I don't know. I don't know exactly who put that thing on. Mm. Steve Englehart was at that convention, right? The 73 one. I think so. Like I say, that that thing is a blur. I mean, when you're on the inside <laughs> trying to put on a show, yeah. I never wanted to put on another show because I said, man, I really did not enjoy the show because I was trying to run things, make things, right. you know, keep the trains going. And it, it was hard. You yeah, know, that's it. I'm done. I mean, it's bad enough just to be a dealer and be stuck behind a table, but we're actually, you're not even behind a table anymore. You're out there trying to fix problems. You know, True. we went out at one point and there was some um, um, belly dancers doing, you know, doing their thing out on right <laughs> on the campus there. Yeah. Was, hey, you guys want to, we're doing a comic book show. You want to, you want to come in and, you know, do your belly dancing at the show? Oh yeah, sure. So all of a sudden we have these belly dancers wandering around the show. You know, because we didn't have a costume show or anything like that. We yeah. weren't not that sophisticated. But that's the next best thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, everybody had a good time, I think. Yeah. You know? And it was a great chance for the underground artists to get a little exposure, a little something, because this was still the early days of undergrounds. And, you know, there wasn't any kind of cohesive thing going on with the undergrounds at all. It was just a bunch of publishers putting out a bunch of comics. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Even Crumb, we still think that we did the first interview with Crumb in 75 or 74 in Promethean Enterprises in the fifth issue. Nobody else had done any kind of lengthy interview with Crumb at that point. He was still just some weird guy doing weird comics in the undergrounds and he was (laughs) not being recognized at all in the real world. Yeah. Yeah. You brought a spotlight or helped put a spotlight on it. it Yeah. We may have helped put a spotlight. I don't know. You were asking about distribution on the Prometheans and that was me. I mean, we'd take them into local stores and give them five copies on consignment or 10 copies on consignment or something. 
And I was selling them through the business and wholesaling them, but that's it. And we didn't have any kind of distributor or anything. Yeah. That's why the early issues are all little tiny print runs, 1,000 copies, 1,500 copies. Was it at this convention that the Tom Riley collection came through? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. two to 4,000 Golden Age comics, a lot of timely stuff that someone had. Tell us about that situation. That happened at that show, but I was back behind the scenes doing my thing. So I was not there when it actually happened. All Everything I know is hearsay, mm. you know. But again, it was Mike Banyak and his buddy. I think they ran into the people first. The people came in with a bunch of comics. They may have come into the front of the dealer's room and Mike and his buddy sort of corralled them and may have gotten them upstairs or something, gotten them out of the way of the dealers. Because, you know, that's like it's it's honey to bees, man. I mean, the dealers are going to send all over these guys bringing in a fresh collection of timelies and stuff. I think they got them up to a room and they bought some of the stuff. Then involved in this, at some point, some of the other dealers were buying some stuff. And then these people started to freak out because they started to realize, oh, I mean, the dealers couldn't hide it. I mean, this was exciting shit. And they were selling this. I don't know what they were selling the books for. It was next to nothing, probably five bucks a comic or two bucks a comic. It was probably something like that, you know, something really cheap, you know, for all this fresh stuff. They supposedly started to freak out. And somehow John Campbell, who was a really good, smart guy. And he was at the point of a small partner in comics and comics. He talked to him and said, look, you guys should pack these things up. I'll come over to your house and we'll make make a deal. You don't want to be dealing with this buying frenzy that's going on here. Mm. And so that's what they did. They went back home and John ended up making making the deal for comics and comics. Mm. I don't know all the dollars or anything about the deal. And of course, nobody knew what a pedigree collection was at that point. The term hadn't even been invented yet. But John got the deal bought the stuff for comics and comics. Of course, we sold them as if they were any other comic book, even though they were really, really super nice condition and stuff. But back then, the value between a good copy and a very good copy and a very fine copy, the spread was tiny. It's a Marvel mystery from the Tom Riley collection. So it's it's nothing. But, you know, because this is 73. Price guy had only been out for three years. But supposedly we, we made good money on the thing. And that was considered the reason we were able to open up two more stores. We opened up the second store, San Francisco. Well, by, by 74, by a year later, we had four stores. We had one in San Francisco, one in San Jose, and one in Sacramento that Scott Maple went up and opened after he had started out in Berkeley. So all of a sudden, you know, we doubled the number of stores we had. Not that that was a good thing, but at the time we thought it was. <laughs> yeah. But tell me about this van accident. It was from Houston to New Orleans. What year was it? And what exactly happened? What was all the chaos? That ensued. This is 73. The bottom line is it was just a car accident. The the chaos that ensued seems to be good old Bob Bierbaum and his rewriting of history and, you know, holding the van accident responsible for a lot of that's come along since then. But basically, I had um, blown my engine up in my old van and I replaced it with a new van. So I had a nice, fancy new uh, new Dodge van that only had about 7,000 miles on it. We'd driven it to a couple other conventions, I think, and we had gone to Houston and done the Houston show. Sunday night, we packed up, and we were going to drive down to Six Flags over Texas, I think, to check it out. I'd never been there. And I think we were going to continue on to New Orleans and then come back to um, Dallas, which was the next week. So only had a we had an opening of two or three days there, four days before the next show in Dallas. And then I think New York probably was after the Dallas show. So there would have been, yeah, it would have been the next show. So three shows, three shows in a row. 
Um, it started raining. Um, I was taking an off-ramp from one highway to another, and basically I hydroplaned off the off-ramp as I took it, and the van ran into a big concrete pylon that was holding up the freeway. And um, so Terry Stroud, Dick Swan, Beerbaum, and I were in the van. Bruce Hershenson was supposed to be with us, but he decided to hang out with Russ Cochran, and Bruce actually married Russ Cochran's daughter, so who knows? Maybe that was a good thing. <laughs> um, but anyway... Um, Dick's got a whole story, which I am not conscious of because I was unconscious, but Dick was just telling, I was just talking to Dick Swan recently and he, um, he ended up going over to a farmhouse that was nearby. Um, cause it was kind of, I guess it was kind of in the boonies and he got them to call the, he said he called the fire department. So the fire department came out. I always thought it was police that rather than the fire department people, but I don't know what I did is I, I broke my nose. I, I hit, I think I hit the steering wheel in my face mm. and I was, un, I was unconscious for some time or I had a, um, you know, whatever. And, um, when I came to, I was sort of wandering around outside the van, but anyway, Dick, Dick had called the, what I thought was the police. And then they came and, um, they basically got us down to, a, um, um, down to the hospital, get us checked in. Um, so I broke my nose and I had, cut my chin up and I broke my kneecap, fractured my kneecap. And Dick had cut himself getting out the window. He says he had to push out the front window to get out the front window and get outside the van. The, it was pretty good. We must have been going 40 miles an hour or something. And so we impacted the, the front engine. The front engine just pushed right back into the transmission into the van. The whole van had a sort of a big curve in the front, you know, where it wrapped itself around this pylon head on to the pylon. Dick says Beerbaum was like laying on the ground screaming or no, nobody, I guess it's Beerbaum that says that. I'm not sure whose yeah. story that is. Yeah. Um, I heard that there was some laying on the ground screaming. I read that somewhere. Yeah. 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 And, but it was funny because my memory of it, it was, was that I don't remember having much impression that Bob was really hurt. You know, he wasn't physically outwardly hurt compared to, um, to Dick and to me. Um, and I don't remember exactly what went on in the hospital other than we yeah. had to call Dick's parents because Dick was underage and we had to get permission to check him into the yeah. hospital. And I got my little cast on my leg. And the funniest line from that book you showed me that talking about this, that someone ran to like a nearby farm uh, and knocking like help. We need help. There's chaos everywhere. And the funniest line in, and it was that Texas Chainsaw Massacre luckily wasn't home that day or, <laughs> or some some horrible thing. Yeah. Yeah. No, that was definitely Dick. I mean, he has a very clear memory of he said he stepped on a nail because he was barefoot because he was basically about to go take a nap in the back of the van because it was late and been a long day and we were driving in the dark. And so typically the guys in the back, we didn't have seats because we took the seats out. We'd have a load of boxes, usually at least two layers of boxes. Then we put a, a four by eight piece of plywood in and people could put a bedroll up or, you know, lay down and sleep. And, you know, it was a funky arrangement. I was driving, so I didn't give a shit. You know, I mean, I was happy. And beer bomb was in the uh, passenger seat. Um, anyway, so that's what happened. We got a hold of Russ Conqueron and he came and bailed us out of the, the hospital took us to a hotel and, and got us a bunch of milkshakes. I remember drinking a lot of milkshakes <laughs> and um, we rented a U-Haul, went down to the junkyard because the van was totaled, unloaded all the stuff in the van and put it in the U-Haul. The U-Haul was a stick shift and Bruce, now Bruce Hershenson becomes part of the story. Bruce has never driven a stick shift. So I'm trying to teach him how to drive a stick shift, you know, in this big honking, you know, 26 foot U-Haul. 
because I can't drive because I can't drive a stick shift because my left leg is in a cast and you don't operate a clutch very well with a, a cast on. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So we drive up to Dallas and by that point, beer bombs gotten himself a cane. And again, I don't know if we were just being assholes or what, but we were sort of going, what's wrong with Bob? I thought Bob didn't get hurt, you know, and, you know, but now, you know, 50 years later, Bob is still, you know, attributing every everything that's gone wrong with him to this accident in 1973. So I don't know, you know, I don't know. I'm not a doctor, but we walk, we all, we all hobbled our way into, into the, the Dallas show. And these guys are going, what happened to you guys? Cause we looked pretty messed up. I think at that point, you know, the, the classic line for me was that, um, I don't know. I think it was, I think it was me that said it. The guys were saying, what are you guys going to do after the show on Sunday night, you know, in, in Houston? And I said, well, we're going to drive a little ways and crash. <laughs> yeah. You literally did crash. Yeah. yeah. So then in late 73, the direct distribution kind of starts. The narrative is that Phil Suling made a deal with some of the bigger companies, Archie, DC, Marvel, and Warren to ship comics from Sparta, Illinois. And was it the start of that direct market for the mainstream comic books? Well, yeah, it's absolutely the, the, the start of the direct market. Beerbaum likes to go back and say the direct market started with underground comics, with people like me or Suling or the underground companies selling to like head shops and, and the few comic book shops that were around in 70, 71, 72. There weren't a lot of comic book shops then. That, there was that many, you know, it was few and far between. I disagree. I, I think that the direct market was absolutely because Suling went to generally, I think of it as Marvel and DC, but he, he must have gone to Archie at some point. He already knew Warren. He introduced me to Warren early on, maybe 70 or 71. And mm -hmm. I went over to Warren's and I started buying Vampirilla six foot posters and some back issues and some other Warren stuff. So I was dealing with Warren already. So the Warren thing was easy for him, but that wasn't the direct market was the comic books. Marvel and DC. You know, it could be that the initial shipments may have all gone to him. They may not have even been doing any drop shipping. Eventually, you know, it became a gigantic operation and they drop shipped the comics directly to, you know, the bigger stores or what they called sub distributors then. But initially, they may have all gone to Phil and Phil may have shipped them out. I couldn't tell you exactly how that was handled. But basically, you know, comics were not in really good shape in, at that point in 72, 73. The, more, the sales were going down. Other forms of entertainment, I think, were were, um, were taking away money from the comic book market. So they were willing to listen. And they, they didn't take it too seriously, but they figured it was another way of making some money, just like selling foreign rights. You know, hey, the British will pay you X amount of money to reprint your books. Sure, it's free money. Mm -hmm. well, Phil will buy little tiny quantity of comics, but he's going to buy them non-returnable. And non-returnable is a big thing because the whole returns deal especially with affidavit returns, right. was a mess. I mean, it was a it was a, a money pit. You know, it starts out as a little tiny operation. And Phil, initially, this is a more of a business thing, but Phil was making people pay up front. So you got a list from Phil of what's coming out in 60 to 90 days, and you had to pay for them in front, which is pretty difficult for little fledgling businesses. That's where Phil and I would have arguments because I believed in giving credit, but I wasn't on the scale that Phil quickly became in the direct market. I was on a little tiny scale. Um, and so I would deal with people. I dealt with Benedict Toshin, the big publisher. He had a comic book store and I'd send stuff to him on credit and he'd pay me 30 days later. 
Mm-hmm. And that's the way the world kind of works. But that's where Phil and I would differ because Phil said, no, I want the money up front. Well, that's fine, except when when all the stores are cash poor and have no capital, they can't afford to, to put much money up front. And so it kind of really restricts the growth of the market. Yeah. So Phil, you know, Phil started the direct market sell, selling that stuff. And then the, the whole thing blew completely open inadvertently because new media came along. They sued Suling for whatever it is, monopolistic market or something. All of a sudden, Marvel and DC started selling to uh, multiple people besides Suling. And as much as I love Phil, he was doing a really good thing for himself for making lots of money, but he wasn't doing a really good thing for expanding the market and making you know comic shops more viable, giving terms, you know, getting more books out to to people, getting getting all these distributors competing against each other. Well, by the time I got out of the distribution business. Um, this is 15 years later, there was like 14, 15, 16 distributors and then sub-distributors on top of that. That's healthy for the market to have all those people getting books out and getting books out into the marketplace. Mm. Yeah. So because his sub-distributors went off and became their own distributors uh, right? and, yeah. and then that's why there were so many or one of the reasons. We're going to go back to like 74, but quick thing on Phil that I was going to ask later is, do you think him losing that market the way he did affected him psychologically? Was he disappointed or angry about it? Oh, yeah. 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 It was. He was real angry about it. Well, for one thing, new media, would, the new media people were total sleazebags. What they did was a good thing for the world in general, but the people that did it were, were scum. The guy that ran new media was not a nice guy. I never got along with them. And they were known for pulling shenanigans with people and saying one thing and doing another. Whereas the rest of us all dealt on all a handshake basis. There weren't contracts between us and stuff. We just would say, you know, my word is good. And we're good. This is what we're going to do. And I'm going to owe you and blah, blah, blah. But new media was something else. So yeah, Phil was understandably upset about it. But, you know, he learned to live with it. I mean, he continued to run Seagate and he was one of a number of distributors at that point, Mm -hmm. you know, and and then unfortunately he got sick. He died in 84. He had a rare liver problem that came along in 83, maybe. It looked like he was getting through it, wasn't it? It It was a lot like having cancer, you know, when you get a cancer operation and it comes back and does you in, you know, he thought he was dealing with it and then it, it, it got him. He died the day before my daughter was born because mm. I went to call him. I may have told you this story before, but I went to call him because we were still really tight. I had my first born daughter, you know, had been born August 20th. And Johnny answers the phone and says, Phil can't, Phil can't come to the phone right now. I'll call you as soon as I can. The next day she calls me and says, Phil's dead. And, oh, he died. Wow. and I went back to his funeral and Allison had just been born. And that was the week she was, I think she's born on Monday. And I went to his funeral on Wednesday or Thursday. And my ex never forgave me <laughs> you know, for flying to New York on, when she was still recovering from a C-section. Yeah, <laughs> but, exactly. You know, I just, yeah, he died. I, I felt like I had to do it because, I mean, the guy was like a father to me. You know, I mean, I loved him and I all the people around him that he introduced me to and stuff. So I had to go, you know, and I was really glad I did. We had a really nice little wake and stuff. There's nothing official, but. We had a nice little wake and um, all his friends got together and swapped stories and stuff. So mm-hmm. it was cool. mm-hmm. Sparta, Illinois, was that location basically picked because it's kind of like in the middle of the country and you can ship equally to all the places? Is that the idea behind Sparta, Illinois? Probably that is true. 
Um, but this is long before comics. Sparta was probably a printing plant before comics were even started to be produced, but I couldn't tell you for sure. It just happened that they had old cheap presses they could run comics on. And so they became the de facto place where you'd print the comics. You know, to be honest, Alex, well, Eastern Color, Eastern Color, which was Dell, yeah. I don't think those were were not printed in Sparta. Mm. I think Eastern Color was its own printing company in the East Coast somewhere. So those were in the Golden Age. Those are being printed by Eastern Color, and probably the comics were being printed in these other places. Mm. And I, I'm speculating now, but I think that it slowly consolidated and ended up in Sparta because they needed to keep the cost really low, and they could run them on these really old presses they'd already written off all the costs on and they couldn't print sophisticated stuff they did time magazine and stuff there but they're not going to print that on this piece of crap press i mean when we went down there and visited them i remember chuck rosansky made a big deal out of it because he's going well what if these presses break you know who's going to be doing the comics there's no fallback at that point and then when they started doing the direct direct market only comics you know, and doing them all glossy paper and stuff like that. They started coming out of Canada I and see. that was the second printer. But anyway, so it just, I think it just happened that as comics got consolidated and there was only Marvel and DC and Archie and a couple other Charlton, a couple other comics in the comic companies in the late fifties, early sixties, it all got consolidated down to Sparta, mm-hmm. which sort of made it easy for Phil because it's all coming out of the same place. So, and, and basically he just makes the deal with DC and, and Marvel, and they tell Sparta what to do. I've read that when he had gotten this distribution kind of set up, that he had offered you to be a distributor for the West Coast. Is that correct? No, Phil never, he never pursued me handling comics. I mean, he had the exclusive in the early days, then it got broken open, and I still had no interest in carrying new comics. My comic shop, my shops were, and they were buying from Phil Suling. And of course, John, John was after me for a long time. He was the, John Barrett was the um, instigator of trying to get me into the direct market and distribute comics because he ended up getting a better deal for comics and comics if I was the distributor. Hmm. But I held out for a long time because I just, I I enjoyed what I was doing. It was more of a hands-on operation. I liked the fanzines. I liked the undergrounds. I liked the books. I was carrying a lot more books at that point. I was doing a nice catalog. I had a nice wholesale operation. Mm -hmm. I didn't really need to be carrying new comics because with new comics comes along a whole other set of problems. Yeah, Making all the comic shops happy, ending up with shortages, with damages. The time factor is a whole other thing. you got to get those comics turned around and out to the store super fast. Mm. And then, of course, there was Air Wars. I mean, they had the whole air freight thing that started up where um, one of the distributors um, in the Midwest started air shipping comics and he got a piece of the market just because he could get the comics to you faster before everybody else reacted. In 1974, a couple of things. You published Barbarian Killer Funnies and Jack Katz's First Kingdom in that same year. So this was kind of toward the end of Promethean Enterprises. How did those get started? I can't take credit for, for First Kingdom, at least in the beginning, because that was actually comics and comics. Beerbaum was a part of comics and comics at that point. 
And actually, Comics and Comics was trying to do distribution on undergrounds. Once again, John was thinking, well, this is a way if we could publish some stuff, we could trade with the publishers, get comics cheaper, make more money on them. And so Comics and Comics said, we're going to publish. And they they talked to Jack Katz, who had become a customer of the Berkeley store. I didn't know Jack from, from anybody. They did a Dan O'Neill. We did, I think, two issues of Dan O'Neill. I'm saying we, I'm sort of di- differentiating myself from comics and comics because this was right. really more of their deal than mine. Yes. And, but the Jack Katz thing in the first kingdom was a long-term, the long-term project. Mm-hmm. And they actually did that for the first six issues. Yeah. Meanwhile, I had done barbarian killer was my, my little puppy. That was a guy down in Santa Cruz. So I would go over and see him and, and um, it, we were going to do It's a Conan parody. So I thought we'd do that. And I did anomaly. And then we had a, one of the guys in the store um, that was managing our store, Jim Pinkowski. He um, wanted to do a comic called Spaced or Spaced Out. And so we sort of, we were the imprint on it, basically, and provided the distribution. But I think it was his money to do that. Um, and then we also did, uh, Comics Comics also did Magic Carpet. Right. That's Alfredo Alcala, right? Alcala, yeah. And that was from 77 to 78 or so. Did you interact with him much? Moderately, yeah, because we had a close friend, a mutual friend, um, Manuel Aud, A-U-A-D, who's now an art book publisher in San Francisco. Manuel's Filipino, and he knew, he was a big comic book fan. He is a big comic book fan. Um, and he knew Alfredo from the Philippines. And so Alfredo needed a place to live when he came over to the U.S. to start doing comics. And Manuel put him up in his basement for a couple years. Um, and so I got to know uh, moderately well. I got to know Alfredo through that. Alfredo was a big um, fan of the classic illustrators like Frank Brangwin. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, he used to buy comics from Vada Bonker and I when we were dealing in uh, antiquarian books with Frank Brangwin and some Dean Cornwell and some mm-hmm. of the classic illustrators. A lot of the artists have studied wow. those guys, you know, including Strankel. If you talk to him about those guys, yeah. he'll probably name them all off to you, too. I see. So Al- Alcala had kind of known you guys already from other things. Yeah. Yeah. And I forget exactly how that comic came together, but it, you know, probably Manuel had something to do with that too. They, you know, he wanted to do a comic. He figured there was some good money in it because the comics were making money. We could do 20,000 copies, front somebody, I don't know, a thousand or 2000 bucks for it, which was good money back in, back in those days, especially for, for comic book artists mm-hmm. and pay them, basically pay them a royalty on, like, on the sales. First kingdom, was done a little differently, but the first kingdom we basically gave gave um, Jack a hundred dollars a week for like eleven years. His wife was really supporting him, but he was able to do this thing and have a regular, you know, small income um, from it because he was only doing one comic every six months. So, you know, that was the big problem with the first kingdom. By the time a new issue would come out, everybody's forgotten what was in the last issue. So I finally talked him into starting to have a synopsis and we'd have a, a guy write a synopsis for us and in each issue so <laughs> the poor readers get, get brought up to date after five six seven years of, mm. of this story i took it over from comics and comics basically when they finally decided that publishing comics was not their gig and distributing stuff was not their gig and mm-hmm. and uh, so i said well that's fine I'll, i'm already sort of in the business i'll take it over and distribute it well, in 1975, the partnership kind of splintered a little bit because Beerbomb left and started Best of Two Worlds, I think in San Francisco or so. What was the circumstances of this kind of partner splinter? That's complicated, too. And there's different versions of that. Basically, at the time, there was irregularities coming along in the Berkeley store where John Barrett and Beerbaum worked. 
as far as there was money occasionally disappearing out of our um, out of our safety deposit box there that we couldn't account for. We had a store within a store. We had the old comics within a store that we had built in within the new store, the big store. And so our antiquarian stuff was there. And it was good because it was easy to police it. There was always a guy behind the counter there. So that was two people at the counter. It was sort of irregularities going on. Beyond that, I can't tell you too much detail because, again, I wasn't working in the stores. But at one point, John Barrett comes to me, um, says, it's either Bob or me. I cannot work with this guy anymore. I mean, there's just too much weird shit coming down. He's doing trades for stuff he says is good for the store, but nobody else is is there privy to the store. He trades some stuff of his own for stuff that he wants from the store for himself. And and there was the cash discrepancies. When John says it's either him or me, I said, well, it's got to be John because I've known John, you know, for much longer and I trust John. And okay, you know, that's it. I, you know, John's, John's my guy. So we had this very acrobatious split up. At that point, we had another partner, this guy, John Campbell, he was working in San Francisco, running the San Francisco store. So we had this acrimonious split up and it got so nasty that Bob was trying to force us to go into every store and split up every piece of property in every store, which would have been insane. There was four stores you know, to go through and say, okay, you get this book and we get this book and you get this book, you know, because we were trying to work out something much more smoother. Bob, how much money you want? We'll buy you out. You leave. We're done. You know, so we started actually splitting the stuff up. And then we finally said, this is not working. This is ridiculous. This, you know, and we bought them. We put, we pushed them out of the business. However, we did that. He was a minority stockholder. So basically do what you wanted to, I guess. And, and we gave him money. I think we gave him I don't know what, I don't know how many thousand dollars, but we bought them, forced them out, bought them out. Then later on, the story comes out, this John Campbell had developed a cocaine habit and he ended up ripping off his folks who had a chain of, um, they had a chain of medical chain they were involved with. And he was ripping them off. He admitted to staging a robbery in one of the San Francisco stores, at least one, maybe two break-ins that we thought was a Chinese gang. They came in and broke the windows, snatched and grabbed a bunch of comics and left. He admitted to doing that because he was going through, at this point, a um, um, AA thing where, you know, you own up to what you did and come back and admit it. Well, so at that point, Beerbaum says, well, it was all John Campbell. You know, you guys threw me out of the store and it was all John Campbell's fault. I had I didn't do anything wrong. Well, you can see where the problem is. You know, I mean, John Campbell is now dead. John Barrett is now dead. You got Beerbaum and you got me with our two different stories, you know, but, you know, I still insist that there was more to it than, than Campbell. I don't think Campbell set Bob up for the fall or anything. Um, I think there was still, I know Bob well enough, I'm afraid, and Bob has screwed people over, over the years. He's done a lot of shady stuff. And I think that he was doing shady stuff. I, I'm not saying he did anything, one thing in particular, but he did enough to make John Barrett say, I don't want to work with him anymore. And John was my guy, you know, so we had to make a decision and, and that that's what pushed Bob out. And so there was a very acrimonious competition going on between us for, for years after that. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Bob proceeded to open up more than one store. He opened up in San Francisco and then he came back to Berkeley and opened up a Berkeley store, which eventually I think became, um, uh, Rory Roots Comic Relief, or maybe it just Comic Relief may have came along because Rory Root did work for Beerbaum. He was Beerbaum's guy, and when Beerbaum went bankrupt on me, and he still owes me a 
a whole bunch of money, which I'll never get, but he blamed it all on Roy Root. <laughs> he said, oh, Roy was buying too many comics. Well, mm-hmm. Bob, my deal's with you. You know, I'm not dealing with your manager. I'm dealing with you. You owe me money, you know, but he goes bankrupt and, you know, I stayed friends with him as much as I could up to a point, And then I finally gave it up. Yeah. The interesting thing is how you guys talk about a lot of the same comics and historical perspectives and history of books in general, not just comic books and artists. And there's so much, such an interesting overlap, but there's still a certain basic nature that seems to have caused a divergence and such a fascinating thing, actually. Um, Okay, so then Broth had started Fantagraphics, uh, the comics journal, and there was a, a time in the, I think, the later 70s, they were kind of low on money and that you may have bought in at some point. What was that story? Yeah, actually, I think Comics Journal didn't start out as Nostalgia Journal. Right, that's and right. I think that was started by some guys in Texas or something. Yeah, or, he took over, yeah. Yeah, and then he took it over and t- turned it into Comics Journal. I mean, what a you know, what a great publication. It was as important to fandom back in the, those days as to me as the buyer's guide might have been, you know, or the raucous blast might have been. I mean, it was a real center point of interviews with people and trying to elevate comics to a higher level, you know, doing serious criticism and stuff like that. Anyway, he was doing a good thing and doing a good magazine, but he was really had run into financial trouble. And um, he came to me and it was so much like John Barrett when he came to me in 1971. Hey, do you want to go into a partnership. I mean, do you want to work together? And um, once again, somehow I begged off and said, no, I don't really, I don't want to really want to be a partner in Fanagraphics. I mean, that's a little bit beyond me, but look, how about if Suling and I start guaranteeing to take your print runs? And at the same time, I think he was switching. He might've been switching to a new format because I think he might've had the first color cover on the, the next one he was going to put out. It was a Gil Kane or a Star Wars cover, something like that. I think it was Comics Journal, I think it was 37. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh-huh. I think it was 37. Up until this point, Suling and I were getting away with buying big chunks of print runs, and eventually we'd sell them. So even if we couldn't sell the comics really fast, as long as it didn't financially screw us up, we could say, okay, we'll both take, I think we both took like 1,500 copies or something. So we... We basically gave him the money for 3,000 copies and said, we'll take them no matter what. You get the money and you can keep publishing. And you don't have to try to figure out how to sell these things and how to get paid by all these people and stuff. We'll take them. And so we just started, you know, buying, splitting his print run like we had done on Squatron and some of these other fanzines. I don't know how long that went on. It got him through his rough patch, basically. So that's that's basically the story. But Gary's been real nice about it. He's, he said at one point that we sort of saved his bacon. Because I know he's gotten into financial trouble a couple times. They had to do a, a GoFundMe. Right, thing. right. They, but they And I asked him about that. But luckily, the community and the readers, he's developed such goodwill with everybody that uh, people would come in at, at these times to help him out, which, which is awesome because we all benefit from what he produces. True. Absolutely. Yeah. So we, we just sort of did our bit to help him out then, and it worked out fine. And mm-hmm. we didn't have to become partners. Right. Who knows how that would have gone. 1980 to 1985, Comics and Comics published Comics Trade Journal, Telegraph Wire. What were these about exactly? Well, the Telegraph Wire was an in-house publication that we'd sell to customers or give away to customers. And of course, Diana Schutz was the editor for the longest time. And because we had that at that point, 
I don't know how many stores we had, six, seven. We had enough stores that we could get away with doing something like that. And it was a good promotional vehicle for saying there's going to be an event in this store, an event in that store. There's going to be a signing here. We're going to have discount days here. And we could distribute it through all the stores. And we could print it. It was just new, a little newsprint thing. In fact, I just came across um, a batch of them. I, I didn't know if I still had a, a good collection of them. But now I got. I know I've got a good, good little stack of them from somebody. Um, I think Diana, I mean, she did, she did, like, she'd go to a show and go to a convention and then talk about it and do stuff like that. I mean, she was the best thing that happened to it. That was great. But yeah, so we did this little in-house publication. Diana's from Canada and she, again, (laughs) keeps going back to me, refusing to have people work for me. Diana wanted to get a job with me or something or wanted to get a job in comics. Uh, I think she corresponded with me. I, I don't know if she wanted to work in my warehouse or I don't, that may not have been the case, but anyway, she needed a green card. So basically we did what we need to do with sent the Canadian government some kind of note and said, yes, we'll provide her with a job in Berkeley. And, and we got her a green card so she could come down and work in the shop in Berkeley. And so, yeah, she was a real asset to comics and comics for a long time. And then, you know, went to work for dark horse and became a, a well-known editor in 1982. So this is the distribution stuff starts off now in, in 1982, Charles Abar's distribution. This was in the West coast. And did you buy his distribution or did he owe you money and, and then just gave you the business? How'd that work? No, no, I, I bought it. Um, you really did your homework, Alex. You, you got the, you got this stuff down pretty good. <laughs> oh, good. Thanks. Um, what happened with Abar is he was a small distributor in the Bay Area at that point, mostly distributing, I think, in the Bay Area down to Santa Cruz and stuff like that. At the same time, he had a full time job. He was running a, um, a delivery truck for the either the San Francisco Chronicle or the Examiner working like crazy because he's a workaholic. The story is his wife put down her foot one day and said, you, Charles, you got to choose. Do you want to be a comic distributor or do you want to work at your your mail delivery job? Because he loved that job. He'd get up, you know, early in the morning and he was the guy that was throwing the papers to the paper boys, you know, and back in back in those days when they had paper boys and liquor stores, we'd get the delivery of the paper early in the morning and stuff. And he said he really liked it. He still drives a big truck like that. Well, he just retired, but he had a supplies distribution business up until recently. So anyway, his wife gave an ultimatum, you know, because he was just not not at home enough. And so he said, well, OK, I'll, I'll get rid of the distribution business. And Charles, he's not a guy that's really motivated highly by money. He's motivated more by loyalty to customers. Hmm. And he really felt strongly that he wanted to protect his comic book stores that had been dealing with him for years and make sure they were taken care of properly. And for what it's worth, you know, he chose me to be the, you know, the recipient of the business. So, I mean, I bought the business from him for a nominal amount. I think it was 5,000 bucks or something. It wasn't mm-hmm. very much. It bought me all those customers that he had because he he had faith that I would take care of his customers properly and not screw them over, raise prices, do a bad distribution job, whatever the whatever can happen to a distributor. So, you know, I sort of got handpicked and that put me into the distribution business, which I had tried really hard not to get into for all those years. As John, as I told you, John was pushing me to get into it. And um, yeah, all of a sudden we started getting um, semi loads of comics up in Grass Valley and breaking them down and running a, we started running a van route with my old white van, the van I'd bought after the accident in uh-huh. Dallas, Texas, that was now running a van route down <laughs> to the Bay area, all the way down to San Jose, I think. You oh, know, cool. 
it was like a 14 hour route. It was just terrible. The van that crashed, was that the one that you drove to the East Coast in? The van that crashed was totaled. I had to buy a new van in Dallas. Right, after. But before the crash, when you went in 1970 to New York, was that, you were in a van then, was that the The one that ended up crashing? No, the 70 was my first van. It was an old tradesman, used tradesman van. The engine blew up twice. I the see. first time the engine blew up, my dad and I fixed it. My dad's a mechanic, right? You know, so he teaches me how to rebuild an engine. Engine blows up. Uh, something blew up the second time coming home from a San Diego con. We break down in Thousand Oaks. We get towed to a Dodge dealership. And while I'm trying to figure out what's wrong with the van, what it's going to cost, and I need to get back to school the next day, um, John Barrett, is out talking to the guy selling new vans saying yeah we need a new van so they ended up they ended up buying my whatever they gave me for my old van and i ended up once again my parents you know backed me for 4500 bucks and i bought a new new van that we told it in houston we had a lot of car car issues yeah that'd be an interesting comic strip bud's vans just kind of a different adventure they're they're more memorable a lot of times than stuff that was going on at shows is when you're out in the middle you know the middle of the night you just had a tire you know cut its way off the rim and you're going okay how are we gonna keep going we had one trip we had to get from new york we stayed too long in new york after the show and we were driving to dallas 36 hours straight we drove right through the night for 36 hours and by the time we were at the end of that, um, I was taking no-dos, which I don't recommend. We didn't have any whites. I would have taken whites if we had them, but, you know, <laughs> all I had was no-dos. That was the trip. That may have been the trip that we lost four tires and two rims in one trip. Oh, okay. Unbelievable. <laughs> um, and then I ran I ran the van to a curb and lost a rim and a tire. I mean, almost in Dallas for the show, and I ended up, you know, here we go again. There's another tire, tire shot. Like, so this crash was really a sequence of mis- <laughs> and misadventures. It sounds now that we have a context here. 1984 then. So now, okay, first, when you did you enjoy the distribution business as you were getting those routes going? Yeah, I suppose I did. It was fun getting the new comics, setting up the accounts. I've already was dealing with a lot of these guys. So I was dealing with the same guys I knew, you know, just for more stuff. You know, so it was sort of exciting in that way. I mean, it said we'd have the semi would drive into grass Valley and we'd break down the comics right in the parking lot and figure out who was all the stores and put their orders together, package them up and send off. It was Paul, this guy that worked for me in my van and he'd drive this really long route. We'd hand deliver the stuff to every store. I mean, that's why I say about service. I mean, look at what goes on now diamonds back in Mississippi and you pay for the freight and you get, lousy packaging and you get damage and you get shortages and stuff back in those days we were hand delivering this stuff to these people and then to be competitive with capital capital decided to open a warehouse they had distribution in the bay area in fact they were using bob i think for part of it bob was a sub distributor -distributor. yeah that's right yeah they decided to open their own warehouse in the bay area and at that point i from a business standpoint i said i have to do the same thing i can't continue to service guys from Grass Valley. I'm too far away. So both of us opened up warehouses within, you know, 15 miles of each other. But then we also had a warehouse where stores could come in and restock stuff. You know, we had these beautiful displays of fanzines and books Mm -hmm. and overstocks on comics. We'd buy extra comics all the time, which can be good or bad, depending on how good a job you do. Mm -hmm. Um, 
but we'd have all that stuff available so stores could come in and restock themselves. And, and there was two stores in the Bay Area. You know, now there's Diamond in Mississippi. So, I mean, things have changed dramatically. The landscape's different. Yeah. And now just some background on 1984. So Pacific Comics started as a mail order retailer and it got into West Coast distribution and publishing. And the publishing end was doing pretty good. A lot of people know about Pacific Comics and Jack Kirby and the stuff that they were putting out. But the distribution end lost too much money and they owed several hundreds of thousands of dollars. So how did you acquire them in 1984? Yeah, one day Bill Shanus calls me up. Now, he was at a sub-distributor at that point for me, for DCs. DC did not want to set up accounts with everybody and their brother. They only wanted a hand-picked selection of people that they really felt confident in to sell DCs to. And so as a result, somebody like I, like me would sell them to Pacific and we'd sell them to, there was an outfit up in Seattle. Um, I think Second Genesis may have been direct with DC, but you know we'd have sub what they call sub-distributors. Um, alternate realities, which was Chuck Rudzanski, I sold him as DCs. DC didn't want to set up Chuck Rudzanski for some reason. They just wanted to keep this little, they believed in having a really close knit group of distributors. And then we, you know, we could have meetings together and it wasn't like 14 guys there, half of whom they might not like, I guess, or something. So anyway, Pacific's buying my DCs from me. So they're building up deals, money on DCs. And anyway, Bill calls me up they owed me $26,000, which doesn't sound like a lot right now, but in 1980, what was that? 84? Yeah. Yeah. That's a lot of money then. $26,000 was a lot of money. Yeah. And he says, we're going bankrupt. We can't pay you, but you know, come down and you can have the business. Basically you can step into the warehouse and you can have all the accounts. And that was his way of taking care of me. Because Bill and I were friends, it was all handshake business and we trusted each other. And, you know, nobody wanted to screw the other guy if we were decent people. I went down there. Bill introduces me to the accounts. I mean, he shows me the warehouse. He turns over the keys to me and says, you need a manager down here because I'm leaving and um, you should go get um, Ken Kruger. Ken Kruger, meanwhile, they had sent him back to Sparta and they had a warehouse in Sparta in an old warehouse. And poor Ken, all the comics they got, they had to go up something like 42 steps upstairs into this firehouse and break all the comics down and then get them back downstairs. Ken said it was a horrible, horrible setup. He doesn't know why they ever bought this stupid firehouse, but that's what they did. So anyway, Ken's the guy from L.A. Ken was involved with, at the beginning with San Diego Comic Con. I mean, Ken goes back into science fiction fandom. He knows all the players. He knew all the accounts in LA because he'd worked with them before for Pacific before they sent him to Sparta. So I call up Ken and say, here's the deal. I just inherited Pacific's distribution business in Southern California. Will you come out and, you know, in management, you want to move back to California with your wife and the two boys. And he says, oh yeah, I do not want to live in Sparta anymore. <laughs> so he had bought a big house. It was supposed to have 13 rooms or something and three stories. And he had filled it all full of all his sludge because he just loves to accumulate stuff. And he got in his car, drove out, took over my warehouse and made the boys and his wife, Penny, pack up everything in a semi and have, have this stuff brought out by a, in a semi trailer. And then they all ended up working for me. Mm. Then he worked for me in counting, and the two boys helped in distribution. Plus, we had a bunch of other guys. There. It was a big warehouse. There was a lot of distribution going on there. So I owe Bill Shanus a lot, actually, because that really increased 
the size of my distribution business, which eventually resulted in me being able to sell to, uh, to Diamond. And by that time, Bill Shanus is working for Diamond. So again, right. who am I going to sell to? I'm going to sell, you know, and Bill Shanus basically handled the negotiations between Diamond and me up to a certain point. And again, I trust Bill. He took care of me when, when times got tough, you know. He introduced me to driving the route down to uh, San Diego. They'd break up the comics in L.A., and then somebody would have to drive to San Diego. We hand-delivered everybody down in the, oh. in the San Diego area, which was another, I mean, it was a lot of work. Did you also was- inherit the debt that he had, too? No, no, no. I didn't get the debt. And, in fact, they had a, a liquidation sale, and I went down and, and we had, we would bid on stuff, and I bought a whole load of stuff from there. to did liquidation, and in fact, the interesting thing was, um, as far as the bankruptcy went, technically they never went to they never went into bankruptcy. They couldn't pay their debts, but to go into bankruptcy, usually somebody has to force you into bankruptcy through the courts. Marvel just wrote it off. DC wasn't distributing to them anyway. Hmm. Marvel they owed Marvel, I think. If I had the number right, it might have been 400000 bucks, mm. but I, I could have the number wrong. So don't count on that. But mm. Marvel just wrote it off. They just, mm. you know, the cost of doing business. Same thing happened with alternate realities. Alternate realities, when they went down, they owed Marvel a shitload of money. Marvel didn't pursue it again. They just figured it wasn't. I mean, it's like getting, you know, what, blood out of a stone. You know, they figured the guys are going bankrupt anyway. Why, why hire a bunch of expensive lawyers to get nothing? You know, ah, so, that's interesting. That's cool. Alternate uh, realities did the same thing. They just they just liquidated their stock. Chuck Rozanski tried to take care of me as much as he could. You know, he owed me a lot more money than Pacific did. But all of a sudden, when I inherited alternate realities, I was already in the process of selling to Diamond. So it was like I don't really want alternate realities. But he calls me up and says, "I owe you a shitload of money, and I can't pay you." Okay, I guess I'll take over your warehouses. That was in 1987. So uh, when you acquired the Rosansky's Denver-based alternate realities, how much money did they owe you at that time? They owed me 180,000 bucks. Okay, so that was more than the 26,000 yeah. from yeah. Pacific. Yeah. And also alternate realities is listed as Nanette Rosansky's. Yeah, yeah. But it was actually <laughs> Chuck's, huh? Well, <laughs> that's a matter of opinion. Chuck claimed it was Nanette's company but i think chuck nearly did that like a lot of corporations do you know they try to to decrease their um income i hadn't thought about that but um liability okay you know like the comic book companies used to have all these different imprints theoretically if one if one went out of business then yeah. that's gone that's but how, yeah hurt. that's how timely was like uh, yeah it hasn't hurt the, a lot of different companies yeah flagship you know and so for chuck i mean i guess he didn't want to risk alter realities um, bringing down Mile High Comics. I see. And so he establishes Nanette as a separate corporation. And if anything happens to her, it doesn't affect Mile High Comics. They don't have to end up paying off the debt. You and Midwest distributor Capital City use Seagate's old space in Sparta, Illinois, right? When you took over Pacific, right? No. Okay. Because I read that somewhere. So that's that's false then. No, no. The the warehouse that that um, I just mentioned, the fireman's place, that yeah. was in Sparta, and that was purely Pacific's warehouse. That had nothing to do with Capital City. Now, also in 1985, you were named by DC Comics and the company's 50 who made DC great. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. What was that credit for? Was that because you were distributing DC Comics? To my mind, I think what they were doing, they were trying to include somebody that represented um, comic book stores the new, the fans turned 
dealer uh-huh. or the new way of selling comics. They had Suling in there. Yeah, so he was the direct market guy. And I was the sort of the next step out between the direct market and the customer. I was the guy with a bunch of stores. I see. And, you know, getting getting comics out. So I see. You know, so, because I mean, think we we may have had the largest chain store operation at that point. Um, since we had six or seven stores and and plus I was a distributor and everything. So they, I was high on their radar, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Great reputation. I think everyone who's dealt with you, it's always been that you were a straight shooter. For, except for beer bound. <laughs> right. There's always been a commentary that you were always honest in the dealings and that you were always fair. Everyone that I've uh, asked about um, minus the minus one person has said that. Thanks. Thanks. I appreciate that. In 1987, now I read this, that, you know, when you look up WonderCon, it says that it was conceived by John Barrett around 1987. Do you know anything about that backstory? No, I don't know a lot about it. I know John was definitely involved with heavily with it at the beginning. I think was uh, Mike Friedrich also involved? The guy from Star Reach? Yeah, Star Reach guy. Yeah, I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. I know John was involved that in 87, he was still part of comics, comics and comics. But the stores weren't really involved with the convention itself. And by 1988, which we're going to talk about two main events here, Bud's Art mail order was still its own separate thing this whole time. No. Up Hmm. until 88, they were blended together. Oh, okay. Um, You know, I was still doing the the mail order retail business, but I also was doing just the distributor business. Okay. It had to be a problem because when you're wholesaling and retailing, you know, a wholesaler can come in a customer that's a, that I'm selling wholesale to could come in and want to buy all the copies. And it's like the one business kind of stealing from the others. If I sell all those 10 copies to this store, that means I got some customers, retail customers that won't get it. So there was a little bit of a, an issue there. And honestly, the, um, you may have read this, that the, the retail business by that point, by 88, was about 3% of my sales. I was doing $12.5 million a year you can see that retail was that big and the wholesale was that big. Mm. Um, so the retail had gotten sort of neglected because I had to deal with the business that was bringing in all the money, which was the wholesale business and deal with all those issues. And I wasn't spending the time on the retail business like I used to. So what we did is in preparation for selling to diamond, we broke the two businesses off and actually physically separated the retail business into another location just for an interim period so that it was a nice clean separation. So mm-hmm. I could sell the wholesale business to diamond, but I still got this little retail business that I'm going to fall back on and make, you know, continue to, to operate. And eventually we moved that business back into our primary location because diamond didn't need a warehouse in grass mm-hmm. Valley. They just, they just operated it for a few months where they had to, and then they bailed out on the location and I moved back into it. I was actually a diamond employee for a few months. In 1988, you sold your distribution business, which we've alluded to a bit already, to Steve Jeppe. At one time, let's see, when I, yeah, this was once I was a distributor, Capital Capital Distribution and I were the two distributors in the Bay Area, and we had an agreement we wouldn't bring in air freight comics because it was going to cost more money. Mm. You know, it was going to co- cost a lot more to air freight stuff than stick it on the back of a truck and bring it out on a semi. What happened was Capital got a really good deal from TWA or one of the airlines, and overnight, they broke our agreement and started air freighting stuff in, which in the long run was not a big deal. But in the short run, it was a huge deal because all of a sudden, 
the stores that buy from them are getting the books a week earlier than my stores are. And so I had to go into the air freight business. That's the reason that I sold my business to Diamond and not to Capital, because I didn't trust Capital. Nice guys. I'm friends with both of them. But when they broke that agreement, that was a red line for me. And I said, you know, so when it came time to sell the business, you know, I said, can I trust these guys? No. You know, they they broke this agreement that we had, you know, just to get a little bit of a foot up on on some of the Bay Area business. So I went to Jeppy because I trusted Jeppy to to come through on, you know, what we were talking about and to keep it quiet. When you're selling a distributorship, you don't want all your accounts to know you're selling the distributorship because then another distributor comes along and says, oh, well, you know, you don't want to deal with Jeppy or he's not going to carry adult stuff anymore because he's not into that kind of stuff and you better deal with us. And, you know, there's all these, there was a lot of competition, a lot of competition from a discount standpoint and a time standpoint and everything. Be really yeah. careful because the negotiations took a long time to, to sell. I had to sell seven warehouses to Jeppy, you know, and it was, so it was a big deal, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You basically decided who was going to win the end. Uh, well, I didn't know that. You know that at the time, but that's basically what you did. You chose who gets to win. Yeah. A little, little did I know. Yeah. If I'd sold to capital, that things might've ended up differently. I'm not trying to give myself credit, but I was the third largest distributor at that point. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know. Yeah. I think Jeppy was number two and capital is number one. And that put Jeppy into the number one spot. That's right. So. It, it still might have ended up the same. Who knows? Jeppy, um, when I asked him, he said there was a dinner that you guys were at together discussing this. Do you remember the details of this dinner? Did he t- was that in Chicago? Maybe. Uh, I, don't, I don't know the city. I don't, I don't remember that part. We might have started that in a discussion at Chicago. So it might have been during a Chicago con. And we went out to dinner together and we're talking about it. I'm not I don't have a real clear memory of that. I know at some point I got Steve Jeppy out and he came to uh, Rough and Ready where I was living at the time and visited the, the farm and everything. And that was sort of fun. And why did you sell? I was basically headed downhill on the business um, at that point. Comics and Comics um, had been poorly run. Um, whether you can blame me or blame <laughs> um, John Barrett and the guys that were running it, um, Comics and Comics at that point had a negative net worth. And they owed me well over $2 million. So I had, Pacific wasn't so much of a problem. That was earlier. But Ultra Realities goes down owing me $180,000. Now Comics and Comics is in very bad shape. And they owe me a couple hundred thousand dollars. That's all basically overdue. You can see what that would do with my cash flow. Yeah. Regardless of any other customers I have that might be stretching the 30-day boundaries on paying bills. So basically, I was I was in really, really bad financial shape. I don't think Diamond realized how bad a shape I was in. They might have chosen just to sit back and watch me go belly up and just move in afterwards. Jeppy mentioned that he was somewhat aware, but that he still liked you and still wanted to make it a good deal for everybody. That's what he had told me. That makes some sense. It was not a golden parachute for me. I came out okay on the whole thing. But at one point, I was almost really ready to walk away from the deal because Diamond did not offer me anywhere near what I thought they should be. But I got some things out of it that added up. I mean, they gave me X amount of money. I won't go into that. But they also didn't want my inventory. But they were willing to sell it on consignment. So I said, well, OK, we can do that. And it turned out to be a great deal for me because I got mm-hmm. 70 cents on the dollar out of everything mm-hmm. that they sold for me. They would have been much better off just buying it. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. they didn't take the money that was owed to me. That I pretty much got screwed on because once I was no longer a distributor, nobody had any reason to pay me if, unless they were honest people. But the guys that were slightly less than honest just go, yeah, we'll just, just stiff them, don't pay them. Mm-hmm. And so I lost a, a chunk of money that way. When all was said and done, I came out of it okay. With, um, and I hadn't gone belly up. <laughs> right. That's important. I also basically almost gave away comics and comics. Like I said, they had a negative net worth. Basically, I gave the comics and comics to my controller, my financial controller, for a token payment of 25000 bucks. Mm-hmm. And he walked off with, with seven stores. What, what had, was his name? Mark Crittenden. Mark Crittenden. He, he ran comics and comics for 10 years. But he ran it with an iron fist. He really had to crank down on the on the expenses and turn it from a money losing operation into a money making operation. Mm-hmm. You got an ink pot in 1994. What was that for? <laughs> oh God! What did they call that? A friend of fandom, I think. Oh, okay, I got gotcha. you. Uh-huh. Yeah, probably for the same thing that I got in the 50 of DC grade. I mean, somehow I guess I represented somebody that was providing a good service for fans and, and had been around for a long time. Um, I, cool. I don't know. Nobody ever quite explained to me uh, you know, what the what reason was, the, but, the reason but you know, for whatever the reason it's well-deserved <laughs> from my perspective. Yeah, uh, I, got, I got it. It was nice. And also I got it from Dennis kitchen, which was really very cool. Cause yeah. I really, I really like Dennis a lot. He's a really, really great guy. So mm-hmm. that was a real honor, you know, to get it from him. And then Ross Rojek bought it. It what in, in comics and comics in 1996, and then and then in 2004, that's when the last two stores, Berkeley and Sacramento, closed, and he actually was arrested for fraud or something, right? The story is it's all hearsay, but he was trying to sell facial recognition. He was trying to sell stock in a, a proposed facial recognition company that mm-hmm. actually there was nothing behind it or something, and I think the SEC came in. And just and shut him down, and he went to jail, I believe, for a while. Wow. So that was the, that was the bitter end of comics and comics. Kind of going now toward the present time, you continued dealing comics at San Diego Comic Con all the way up through 2018, which was the 48th convention. Then I think, from the way you explained to me when I asked you at the time, uh, that you didn't sell at the 49th or 50th because you were just kind of tired and it was a big rigmarole and the money output wasn't that great to to warrant all that. Is is that correct? I mean, there was a time in San Diego, we were the biggest players on the block. I mean, we had 10 booths before Marvel and DC and Paramount and the movie companies all came in Mm -hmm. back in the nineties. Yeah. The late eighties, late eighties, early nineties. I mean, I, I was a big player down there and everybody came to get their books before the internet. And we continue to do real well, but 2008 was the, sort of the beginning of the end for San Diego for us. Um, when the stock market crashed, suddenly our sales went way down in San Diego, which was not good when you got 10 booths and, mm-hmm. and 11 employees and you're hiring a, you know, a tractor trailer to bring the stock down because we'd bring 30, 35,000 pounds of stuff down there. It was a big operation. From 2008 onward, it just sort of got worse and worse every year. Um, there was more more internet out there, more discounting of material, more people selling the kind of stuff we were selling. And um, I just couldn't, I, I went from 10 booths to six booths to three booths to whatever. And it just, no matter how fast I got smaller, the business dropped off faster and it wasn't really as worthwhile to be down there. Yeah, I finally just decided, you know, we, 
we got all the way down. It was embarrassing. I shouldn't have got down to one table. I should have just given it up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but we went down there with one eight foot table one year, you know, just to sort of have a presence. And, you know, I took some, we took old material and we were selling old material and stuff, but it was just, we, sh- we needed, we should have given up before that. And and the big thing was you, you sort of touched on it. It's the logistics of doing San Diego. It's a really, really long show. You know, it's Wednesday through Sunday, Wednesday night through Sunday. So you have to set up on Tuesday. Yeah. Getting in and out of the show is, is really a, a burden with the Teamsters. Um, they're perfectly nice guys, but they don't operate very efficiently. I mean, you could be in a truck line for two hours to get into the show. And then I've got to go find a place to park the truck, which there are no places in San Diego to park a big truck when you need to park it in a hurry. It's a marathon, you know. Mm-hmm. down there from eight o'clock in the morning until maybe seven o'clock at night talking to all kinds of wonderful people but you know it's exhausting it's draining um so when it when it started to be go south financially it wasn't nearly as much fun as it had been you know and um i figured well yeah why why keep doing it i could come down here and buy old comics and make myself happy i don't need to be here just to make other people happy everybody was happy to have us down there but not enough people were buying buying material from us to make it continue to pay off and then you were a guest for the 2019 san diego comic-con that was the 50 year anniversary they put you up in a hotel you did a couple panels how was that experience i felt really taken care of i mean they really gave me first class treatment as good as any you know famous artist would have gotten i mean they flew us down there they paid our parking at the airport they put us up in the nice hotel Ann and I had been staying at her friend's house in San Diego and having to commute in on the on the light rail system in the last few years to keep our expenses down. And here we were staying at the Marriott and, you know, all the time in the world and got to do a couple panels that were fun. So I had, I had a lot of fun. It was really it was really great. I'd go every year if they invited me like that, you know. Right. Of course. And I had lots of time to go scout for old comics, which is still my my thing piled up big stack of acquisitions at the end of the show, you know, and it was cool to walk out. I think I walked out of there on Sunday around noon or something, which, you know, if you were set up there, we wouldn't get out of there until 1130 or midnight on Sunday night. Uh, Unpacking up. Yeah. After five days of doing a show and you're still, I'm wheeling around pallets in the back of a truck, walking out to the hotel and just sort of kicking back with a drink and calling a couple of people on my cell phone and, midday Sunday, I thought there was nothing better than that. So this is the way I should be doing this. This is pretty cool. But the Bud's Art books, that's basically what you've been doing since 1988 officially. And then you would take you would go to conventions and deal and things like that, all through Bud's art books, basically, right? Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's where things are at now. Yeah. When I sold out to Diamond, I was Bud Plan Incorporated and I had to officially dissolve that corporation. There you go. Yeah. Uh So that changed the name to Bud Plant Comic Art. And then in 2006 or seven, we we got together with a consulting company to try to market our stuff better and try to reach out and hit more people because we were doing pretty good. I think at that point, I don't know if the numbers matter or not, but we were doing about four and a half million dollars a year, which was a Mm -hmm. good, good chunk of money for a little retail business. So we were trying to make it more successful and everything and continue to grow. And um, we went to this consulting company and they sort of talked us into changing our one, one consultant at the company talked us into changing our name, which we proceeded to do. Um, 
And then the boss that originally got the account with us comes along and says, why did you change your name? Your name was kind of cool. You know, I mean, why did you change it? This Bud's Art Books. Because your consultant told, convinced <laughs> us to do it. Because <laughs> we were going to go out and compete with Amazon and compete there in the go. real world, which was totally bullshit. We should have never tried to do that. We should have just stayed with our niche Niche market, you know, that's what happened with the name. Okay, yeah, and so unfortunately, the the business sort of went downhill from there until through 2011, and then I did this major downsizing and rebuilt the business again, you know, into what it is today. Ah, okay, yeah, that's great. That's great insight because you know I've been to your house, and then you have a lot of just comics just there anyway. But I know that you also have a warehouse from which you do things. Do you still go to that place to sell? Some books a few days a week, a commune. Oh, oh no, co-op, the co-op. The co-op. No, I yeah. actually, I, when COVID came along, um, I I bailed out of there. That was called Book Camp. It's a little co-op of eight, eight or nine um, booksellers, and yeah, okay. I had a place in there for almost twenty years. Okay, and I was the comic book guy. I had a little comic book room. We called it Bud Plant's Amazing Fantasy Room. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's still cool. trying to capitalize on my name because it's been out there for 50 years. So yeah, why not? Exactly. Yeah, I would have liked to have seen that before that went, but that's okay. Maybe you can show me pictures or something. So co-op, for some reason, I don't know why I was thinking commune and people swapping wives and things. I don't know what I was thinking. <laughs> <laughs> so you've never been to my warehouse, my actual warehouse? I don't think I've actually been to the to the actual Bud's Art Books warehouse. Okay. Yeah, well, you definitely have to come up there. I don't have yeah. any plans to close it, but so there's no deadline for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would love to. We've been in there. We've been in there for something like 35 years. Yeah. I should have bought bought that building decades ago. Because that you could, you would have already kind of made money off that. Yeah. Yeah, I would have owned it. And yeah, yeah. But we built a mezzanine. The problem is we built a mezzanine into it. And so that halved our rent. It doubled our space and halved our rent. And so I just can't move out of there because it's such a good deal. I mean, I'm paying basically on. Um, what 5,000 feet on the floor, but I've got a whole mezzanine I built myself with my money and we use all, we use it all. I mean, we're yeah. 2,500 feet on the ground and 2,500 feet above. Yeah. So we've got 5,000 square feet and it's, it's getting full. You wouldn't, yeah. it's getting fuller and fuller. As I we bet start. it is. Yeah. <laughs> this was a, a really great retrospective experience for me looking back at your life with you. I know we've talked about a lot of this stuff, but it was always like pieces here and there. It was never from A to Z, like the way we did today. So thank you so much uh, for spending the time uh, with me today here at the Comic Book Historians channel. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. It's been a lot of fun. <laughs>